Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I'm Ben Duncan, and on this podcast, I will be interviewing prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana. In today's episode, I am joined by Nicholas Vandenbosch. Nicholas is a program architect working out of Belgium and representing Salesforce. Through the episode, we heard more about what first attracted Nicholas to computers and then ultimately studying software engineering. We look at when he completed his master's and, and graduated from his master's and what he was looking to do with his first role, first full-time job, and what he ultimately was seeking from an employer. We discuss how he found consulting initially, the kind of roles he played and the projects that he was exposed to. And then we touch on how he stood out and ensured he was given opportunities to progress, which can be a challenge for people when they're joining a business as a graduate. Getting the opportunities that everyone wants is difficult. So Nicholas talks about how he approached that. And then we delve into the role of playing an architect when he stepped up into that role and when he felt he was ready and what made him feel he was ready. And then we discuss why he stayed with a Salesforce consulting partner for so long. He was with one organization for several years, many more years than is kind of normal in the ecosystem at the moment. So Nicholas explains why and what kept him ultimately with one company. We look at what he has had to do in terms of learning other technologies outside of Salesforce and why he's done that. He spent most of his career working with Salesforce. So it was interesting to hear how he has approached learning other technologies in the broader technology landscape. We look at his CTA journey, how that unfolded, and the areas of the review board that he believed would be most challenging for him through the journey and how he plugged those gaps, and then discuss why he enjoys giving back to other people on their CTA journey. And yeah, really, really great episode. And Nicholas is a great guy, has lots of interesting insight to share, and really hope you enjoy the episode. And if you do, please do subscribe for future episodes that are coming through. Nicholas, thank you very much for joining us from Belgium. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. I've been listening to the podcast for quite a while, so uh, it's uh, an honor actually to be on the podcast myself as well. Uh, the honor is all ours. And, and uh, yeah, it's so great to have guests that do listen to the podcast. And I know uh, when we first spoke, there are a few that you'd, uh, you'd flagged as having listened to. And I think you're actually the second CTA from Belgium that we've had on the podcast. So uh, I don't know. Do you know how many CTAs there are in Belgium? Because we're making a good dent into that market. Yeah, since uh, last week, we're up to five now. Oh, wow. So we, okay. We, we had at the end of last year, we had uh, Lilith, who uh, was number four, and then Robin, who was yeah, since last week, number five. Of course, Lilith, I'm, I'm speaking to her soon as well. So that's, uh, that's good okay. to know that. So I'm definitely making my way through the, the numbers of the CTAs in, in Belgium. Um, yeah, definitely. But look, we've got a lot to discuss and obviously we'll go through your career and, and how you became a CTA and obviously that's going to be part of the topic. But I like to kind of look backwards and, and understand how you got to the point you're at now and I guess where your interest came from and I guess what led you to the career of being a Salesforce architect. So when did you first become interested in, I guess, computers, but then studying software engineering? When did that become something that you wanted to pursue? Yeah. I love to tell this story because uh, it was it started when I was a little kid. We had uh, this computer. It was a Windows computer from my dad's work, actually. Then, you know, uh, back then, they had encyclopedias on CD-ROM that I was using to do my homework and stuff like that. I was, I was quite fascinated by that. And up to the point that 
Uh, I don't know how it was in Australia, but in Belgium, we had these friend books where you could give it to other people and they could fill out their interests and all that stuff. Uh, and I always uh, said when they asked, okay, what do you want to be later? Uh, I always say I want to be an IT guy because I was so interested in the uh, in computers. And I think that you know later on that there was that feeling was prolonged by being interested in video games. I really love to play video games. And I think at some point I wanted to be a video game developer or you know create my own video game, something of the sorts. I never got around to that, but the computer stuff always was in the back of my mind. And so when I had to choose a direction, what to study when I went to university, that's when I picked up software engineering. But it's never too late to uh, to make your own game. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And uh, so, so you you started studying software engineering, and you you did a master's, I believe, which um, in software engineering as well. Yeah. So there was actually there was the the IT bachelor, and then you could extend that with a master in software engineering, uh, which went a bit more onto uh, specific areas like video editing, and uh, even we did a little business projects which i really liked uh, where you really had to pitch it in front of a client which was then our professor uh, yeah so nice. it was quite a cool experience so what when you when you um you completed your masters you were ready to go into the workforce like what were you looking for as a, a graduate you know a software engineer what what was it that was going to excite you about your first step into the workforce well what was most important for me was to stay close to the technology because yeah, that's what I studied, that's what I love. Uh, and so at first I did some job interviews for becoming a developer, so more a developer role, uh, but those didn't pan out and I, I kept my options open also. Uh, had a friend who was working in consulting at Accenture. And so I did an interview there and I was really blown away, I would say, by the, the people. The, the technology also played an important role, of course. But really, the the atmosphere uh, that was really what uh, what pulled me in, and then of course the opportunity that I would get to stay close to the technology, that combination that was actually perfect for me. So, how, obviously, coming straight out of um, university, straight into consulting and um, and being a consultant, how did you fare initially? Was it a, a, like a natural progression for you? Did you feel comfortable as a consultant? And I guess the next part of that is when you say you wanted to stay close to the technology, what did you actually do as a consultant? Yeah, so I was actually in a, a team that was doing the actual implementations quite close, either doing it onshore uh, with the team itself in Belgium or with a couple of uh, people uh, and offshore uh, in India, for example. But I started actually in the Java space. So we did for a public sector, we did the Java implementation with some mobile as well. Uh, so it was quite different from the Salesforce path that I took later, uh, but that lasted for, for about six months. But I noticed immediately that I could take a role where I was technical, I was writing some Selenium scripts that existed back then as well had to automate some of the Java testing that uh, we needed to do. Uh, so that, yeah, that really excited me that I could take those opportunities and say, hey, let's find a solution for a problem we're having in the project with the technology uh, that exists. And how long was it before you went from working on Java projects to Salesforce? It was after that, that first project, after six months. 
uh, then actually, uh, you know, we had somebody from Accenture who I didn't know who was calling me, hey, uh, what do you know about Salesforce? I'm like, yeah, it's in the cloud. Uh, <laughs> that's about all I knew, right? And so he said, okay, I'll send you a video, look at it, and let me know if you're interested. We have a project starting soon. So I looked at it. It seemed interesting, right? In the beginning of your career, you just take whatever chance you get, right? Every opportunity that you get. And so I went with it and uh, yeah, that was the first project where we did service clouds in, in a Belgian company, uh, but it was actually a global company. And then we started rolling that out to different countries, the, to uh, Netherlands, Germany, UK, France. And yeah, we implemented it there locally and then also trained the people uh, in, in those countries. A good landing into that the Salesforce world. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That took me, I think that project was one and a half, two years. Yeah. And then it just continued on from there. So uh, by then, uh, in the beginning, I would say when I started uh, on Salesforce projects, we didn't really have a Salesforce team that didn't exist yet, at least not in Belgium. And then it gradually started with more projects coming up across uh, Belgium. And then by the time that the second project started, uh, we really had a team. And yeah, I could just do one Salesforce project after another. So that was, yeah, a bit of a luxury, but also a good learning school for me. Sure. So uh, interestingly, like you were given an opportunity to work on Salesforce, like someone called you and, you know, asked you if you're interested and, and off you went and you've never looked back. But I guess there will be a lot of graduates joining these big global SIs and, you know, they, they join often in large numbers each year and it can be difficult to stand out and and I guess, get those opportunities. So how did you make sure, and while you're working within a consulting organization that you were standing out and that, you know, you weren't being overlooked for progression and, and exciting new challenges? Well, to be honest, that's, I didn't really do anything specifically, I would say. It's also not in my nature to brag about what I've done or to create visibility for myself. I learned that over the course of my uh, career. But in the beginning, I would say it was just an eye for detail, making sure that everything that I delivered, that it was 100% correct, and I wouldn't go for 99%, right? And checking with others around me, right? That's also a big part of being in a consultancy company. It's you're not alone, right? Use mm -hmm. other people around you, even if it's just on the project. Right. In the beginning, it was a lot of my project manager that I was sparring with directly. But then over time, yeah, you reach out to maybe previous project members or, you know, some of your offshore counterparts that, that you learned a lot from. But really that eye for detail and being a reliable resource, that was very important because that's also what my manager at the time and my career counselor, which is kind of coach right in the company, they both picked up on that and they were kind of advocates for what I was doing. And I guess I was quite lucky in that way that those people were already knowing how to uh, make my work then in that case visible to others. And that's how I grew. Sure. But then over time, yeah, I needed to learn how to make myself a bit visible and go with, I would say, against my nature to 
brag a bit about what I've done. It's not really bragging, but showing others, hey, you know, this is something that I've done and I'm proud of it, right? Yeah, nice. Yeah, I guess it, it is a natural for everyone, but in consulting, especially in a big consulting firm, I guess it can become important. But if you are seen as a reliable resource, then also other people will be doing the promotion for you as well, because you know, they're, they're putting their reputation on the line by recommending the work that you've done and, and putting your name forward for certain opportunities, I guess, as well. Yeah, 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 definitely. I think what also helped is that mostly the people on the, the onshore teams, they're more a combination of Salesforce admin with, you know, strong functional background, understanding business processes and so on. Uh, while I was always pulling that technical side towards me. So from the beginning, you know, I was diving into the code together with the developers. I even remember that uh, we had somebody from the Philippines in our development team come over on shore. And, you know, we were really sparring, okay, how can we best implement this? And you know, that's how you learn a lot by seeing how others are doing it, but also getting your hands dirty, right? And I was seeing that not a lot of other people were doing that inside of the Salesforce space. And especially as the team grew, there were more people on the functional side that knew how to declaratively build an application, but on the really technical architecture side, that's a skill that doesn't come very often. So were you actually, because obviously when you're working with an offshore team, sometimes the work can be passed offshore and you're doing code reviews and you're you know doing some design and, and maybe giving guidance on how to do it. But were you actually getting to write code as well in those early days? Uh, yes, in the early days, yes. But maybe it was just even some wireframes. The, the actual end deliverable usually it, it was lying with the offshore teams. But it's like saying, hey, you know, this is uh, in some pseudocodes how you could write this, which for me was the interesting part, right? Making sure that, you know, all of the syntax is correct and th that it runs without errors. That was not really the interesting part for me. It's more, okay, how do I solve this problem? How can I translate it into Salesforce on a technical level? That was really exciting. And that's also what I evolved more into uh, now also as an architect but then yeah sometimes you don't even see uh, the code that's uh, sitting behind it yeah and and that was going to be my next question like when when would you have classed yourself an architect in that journey like at what point were you an architect or w whether that was by title or by responsibility and and how did you become an architect like what were the steps that you took to to be ready to be an architect well for me it's always being interested in the technical side, always learning more and more about, okay, not only how do you do this, but how do you do this well, right? What's the best practice? And not taking whatever you did on a previous project as, okay, this is the right way to do things, right? It's always challenging. That's kind of just the mindset that I had going in. Maybe something that I learned in, in university, thinking critically, right? And over time, that just naturally evolved into an architect role. But the first one, first role that I would say I really felt like an architect was when I had somebody else as a technical lead and I was doing the, the more high-level architecture. Okay, how does it fit inside of a bigger picture, right? And yeah, that's just, I think it ties back to being recognized for the good work that I've done in the past.
right? Knowing that you're a reliable resource, you know the technology inside and out, then eventually people will say, oh yeah, but if we put Nicola in that role, we're sure that he will do a good job. And then yeah, at some point there is just no other architect around, right? Then you kind of get that uh, role naturally assigned to you. And I think what I needed as a kind of going in to really think of myself as an architect is just have a lot of experience in different companies. Because, okay, we talked about my first client where I stayed. Uh, so one and a half years was the first project. And then I think another year for the second project. But then afterwards, I really did a lot of clients in different industries. And for me, that helped me a lot, right? Uh, utilities, banking, insurance, you name it, right? I've, I'm, I think public sector was a bit later, but that also uh, made an appearance. Chemicals. That was really a broad range of different companies, different processes, different mindsets, different IT landscapes. And that's what gives me just a lot of practice, I would say, in how to solve the, the different kind of problems that you could have in, in an IT architecture. Uh, and that helped me also get some confidence in, hey, I can call myself an architect. And it's interesting because I guess you, you like nothing changes as you progress through your career, like how you mentioned before, like be a reliable resource, like ask people when you don't know the answers. Like, I guess it's the same when you're an architect as when you're a, a graduate uh, doing your first job. Exactly. The, the only difference is you build your knowledge over time by, and, and that's something that I really enjoy doing is continuous learning. And, and the second is experience by experiencing it in different situations, different organizations. And that's what I really like about consulting is that you typically jump to different projects and definitely in the Salesforce space where yeah, projects are typically shorter, right? They're three months to a year, I would say on average. And yeah, that just gives you a lot of opportunities to uh, be involved with different companies. So you mentioned there you have a thirst for learning and, and like bringing knowledge on and just continually learning, but you have spent most of your career working with Salesforce. Like in terms of, obviously you had the Java stint at the beginning, and I know you'll have worked in projects where Salesforce is a part of a bigger program of work that touches on other things. But how important has it been for you in your own time to continually learn things outside of the Salesforce ecosystem as well? And what kind of things have you kind of focused on? Yeah, I think when I go back to my studies there, I had a broad basis, right? We learned everything from VBA to, you know, deep assembly into C, C++, all those kind of things. So I, I had a good basis to understand, okay, what is out there? And that really helped me. But for me, once I started working, uh, it's just some things that I pick up. It could be inside of the job that things that I pick up, like, okay, I want to understand more how JavaScript is working, especially when LWC was launched and Lightning Web Components, where everything is in JavaScript. But even before that, I was doing some things in Node.js. Those are just things that popped up because I saw somebody else, you know, in a Salesforce-related blog post talking about that. And I said, okay, that's interesting. Now I saw 
somebody talking about, okay, how can you build your own personal website? Okay, and they did that with Go. So then I started to learn a bit, okay, how is this Go thing working? And it's more accidental, I would say, uh, accidentally that I come into contact with these technologies. And if it piques an interest, then I, I love to dig deep, right? I think that's one part. And then other parts are just things that I encounter inside of the job. Because like you say, okay, you have Salesforce, but then you, you always talk, for example, about, okay, how can we get the data inside of Salesforce? So you need to work with tools like uh, ETL tools. I, you know, in, in one of the projects, we had Cost Iron. It's, a, it's an IBM product that we were using. So, okay, I just took a look together with the developer. Okay, how is this working, right? Because it's also part of our scope. Maybe I can help out with that as well. Now, okay, we have MuleSoft inside of the Salesforce space, which is interesting to me. But then, you know, even lower down, okay, before it goes into an ETL tool, you have to have an SQL database, right? So learning about, okay, I already knew some SQL from, from back in university, but okay, how can we best apply that? And then sometimes you get lucky. I also got lucky with one of the projects where it was not only a Salesforce implementation, but we it was tied to Heroku, right? And on Heroku, you have different types of languages that you can interact with. And there we actually wrote a Python application uh, that was kind of doing the number crunching outside of Salesforce and then pushing it back. And there was Python, but also doing deep database optimization to make sure that all of the queries that were running were very performant. And so then I learned a lot about new technologies on the job, but it's really, if I see something, it piques my interest, you know, I bite into it and try to find out as much as I can about it. And maybe a last example there is now inside of uh, Salesforce, yeah, we're a product company, right? Uh, we built the product. So looking at the engineering side of things where there are very, very smart people, I'm really amazed, that are working every day on our products and looking at some of the topics that they're discussing amongst themselves is just so interesting to me. And I learn a lot about technologies that I would never come in contact with in my day-to-day, -day. but still, you know, it, that piques my interest and I want to know more about it. That's uh, kind of the red thread throughout it all. This episode of Talent Hub Talk is sponsored by our friends from Flow Republic. Flow Republic is a Salesforce Architect Academy that works with individuals and businesses to upskill and prepare Salesforce architects for the CTA review board. They also have a number of other offerings, including coaching and guiding on areas such as soft skills, consulting and design training. Flow Republic are some of the brightest minds in the Salesforce ecosystem and have a proven track record of developing Salesforce professionals and helping architects to reach their goal of becoming a CTA. To find out more about the value they can add, please check out flowrepublic.com. Yeah, I mean, it must be like a playground for a technologist working in Salesforce with the amount of smart people and the amount of collaboration, I guess, across the world that would go on. And, and you know, and it is a, glo a truly global company where you would get to, to talk to people in India and then San Francisco and, you know, across Europe. And, and yeah, I can only imagine if you have a thirst for learning, it would be a great place to keep learning. Definitely.
So you stayed with one consulting company for quite a, a considerable period of time. And I, I guess I say a considerable period of time in these days. I know historically people would stay at companies for, you know, 15, 20 years, but you did stay at, and that's not common in the Salesforce ecosystem. People kind of jump around quite often. So how, how did you benefit from staying in one organization and growing with one company rather than, you know, choosing, because a lot of people go between one partner to another partner to another partner. And I always wondered, like, what's different about those roles? You know, like, why are you going from one to another? What, what aren't you getting in the one that you're in? So what, what was it that kept you in one and, and what kept you learning and, and growing? What kept me personally in one is, for me, building new relationships. It's not easy, right? Sometimes it might seem like it's easy to me, but uh, it, it really takes a lot of energy for me. So when I've built already a lot of relationships, inside of the company that's not something that i want to give up easily i think that's one part the second part is also at some point you really become committed you believe in in what that company is doing and you're committed to you know a, a bigger cause than yourself uh, right what what the the company is uh, striving towards and that's something that i always kept on believing in and then the third part is I had a good, I think it's a good advice from somebody who said, yeah, why would you change companies if there are still opportunities for you to learn inside of the company that you're with? Yeah. Right. And I always had that feeling up until when I changed to Salesforce, I always had that feeling, yes, there is still more to learn here for me. And, and I feel like I can uh, really grow personally, professionally uh, inside this company. And then maybe to address uh, the other part where you say, okay, a lot of people are jumping around. I think you can jump around and jumping around is usually good for your salary, for your title that you get. But personally, I don't believe that it has a positive impact on the experience that you gain over time. Why do I say that? Because whenever you join a company, you first need to you know, get the basics right. Uh, it's stupid things like learning to work with Google versus Teams, right? Or it could be uh, understanding how your time tracking works or whatever, right? You need to invest a lot of time on onboarding. Then understanding the methodologies that that company is using and so on. But then by the time you actually, you know, can really learn and, and get more out of it, yeah, then you've spent already quite some time. And that's also a benefit from my point of view, in staying with one company, you already have that basis and you can just keep on building your knowledge throughout that, uh, that time with one company. Yeah, I think the point about like learning is like when, when someone comes to me and they're looking for a new role, if it's not because they they feel they're underpaid, the, the major thing is because they feel that they've stopped learning. And I guess like in consulting, obviously, yeah, it's important that you're working for a company that you you buy into, like you said, but it's also important that the company that you're working for can provide the kind of projects that are going to give you that platform to learn and it sounds like you you know the projects you've mentioned uh, were big chunky projects where you're working you know on, on european rollouts and things like that so i guess that also plays a, a part right if every new project is a new industry and, and a new challenge then that kind of ticks the boxes as well yes yeah exactly and i might have been lucky in in that aspect yeah, as i said i think it's also being known for being a good person a good resource that helps as well right 
then over time, yeah, when there are these new projects where they need some deep technical expertise, it doesn't matter which industry, they will ask you. And then mm -hmm. after a while, I could even say, hey, maybe I don't want to do this project because it's very similar to something that I did before. Or sometimes, you know, I, I said, hey, maybe this client, I've seen that client now, let me change with another client, even if there is not an immediate role available, right? It's funny, isn't it? Because that, that point about um, having having worked with, like I've done that project before with another client, so I don't want to do it again, because you would think the manager would be like, well, then you're the perfect person to do it again, because you've already done it once before. Like I can, I have no stress here. I can put you on this project and you'll do it easily. That's also true. And sometimes you have to, yeah, bite the bullets or however you say that, right? You do something that you know, okay, maybe it's not the most interesting role, but it will help out the company. And that's a give and take. And that's something that, that I learned throughout my career as well. You cannot just from the start get any project that you want. So in the beginning, I was always a bit, okay, just whatever project you throw at me, I'll take it. Then after a while, okay, maybe it's a project that doesn't interest me. I speak up about it. I say, okay, it's not the most interesting project, but you know, I'm happy to do it for two or three months to help you out, to find somebody else that can take over. And, and that really worked well. But first, yeah, you have to have that, that credibility in the company. And that also helps if you're, of course, longer with, uh, with the company once you've built those relationships. Yeah, you have to earn the right. Exactly. So when did becoming a CTA, when did that become a goal of yours? And, and can you kind of shed some light on how that journey played out for you? Sure. It Actually, I never made it a goal for myself, I would say. What do I mean with that is I, yeah, as I said, I have this thirst for learning. So those new uh, prerequisites, designer credentials, they came out at some point. So I started working on them just because I was interested in those parts of the system. I wanted to learn more about it, not necessarily because I wanted to go for that CTA title. Uh, in my head, it was, okay, it's something for people who have like 15, 20 years of experience. Uh, okay, I'll see it when I get there. Right? But then once I got the prerequisite uh, certifications, I was suddenly invited to the, the CTA program that we had at Accenture. And there they say, okay, uh, hey, do you want to join this program? This is how we're doing it. But if you join, then you need to set a target for yourself by when you want to get it. And it sounded interesting. I set the targets, I don't know, it was one and a half years or two years. It shifted a couple of times as well, right? Depending on project priorities, you, you shift that kind of thing. But it was something that I was continuously doing. I had a mentor assigned, which was actually uh, Tamim, Tamim Barry, who oh, yeah. literally wrote the book on CTA, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, I worked with him every couple of weeks. We had uh, a mock, just walking through that, but not really with a fixed deadline, right? I had in my mind, okay, maybe in one and a half, two years, but let's see where it takes us. And I was kind of going off of his feedback to see, okay, is this something that I can take on? Yes or no. And then at some point, yeah, we both had the feeling, okay, might be time to try it. And then I scheduled it, I think in 2018, at the end of 2018, scheduled the first uh, one was in London. Uh, and that one, I had a section retake. 
on the on development lifecycle, then waited for quite a while to get a date. Okay, because I was okay. I'm I'm in that flow, right? I'm I'm prepared for the exam. Let me retake this one section. But then, yeah, I think there was some issue with the scheduling and so on. In the end, I, know, I think it was somewhere in March of 2019 or April, where I get uh, the message saying, hey, uh, you can take your retake. But uh, it was Friday and it was the next Monday. No way. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I was yeah, really doubting because okay, I had no time to prepare, just the one weekend. Uh, but on the other hand, yeah, I didn't want to wait yeah, more than four months for another date. So I said, okay, let's just go for it. But yeah, that was clearly a mistake. I wouldn't recommend anyone doing that. So I failed that uh, section retake then on that Monday. But yeah, I, I got good feedback from both uh, my mentor and then uh, also from the Salesforce team and from Suzanne. They were saying, yeah, we know you can do it. You just had a bad day. Yeah. Uh, so then, and, and they were quite forthcoming and scheduling another board then in July of 2019. And then I really prepared. And meanwhile, Tamim had, had left the company. So I was actually preparing with Andrew, Andrew Hart. And then, uh, yeah, we got there in the end uh, in July of 2019 uh, in Berlin. So that, that was uh, yeah, quite a... A glorious moment, I would say. Yeah, I can imagine. So, so the area that you um, obviously you got the partial pass, the area that that you needed to resit. Did you know that that was going to be the area that you would find most challenging? Not at all. Really? That, that's and and that's also something that I heard a lot uh, during the preparation. Is okay, you know, development lifecycle. You can prepare it fully upfront. It doesn't matter what the scenario is. You know, you you draw your environment diagram, you explain how you will do uh, your Git branching, how you combine it, Git with the different types of testing that you can do. And, you know, that's it. You can bring almost the same story every time and you need to tweak it a little towards what the exact scenario is, but that's it. But what I really struggled on during the, the exam was more around the governance setup. So, okay, how do you work with the center of excellence? How do you make sure that all of your stakeholders are in alignment? How do you tackle on you know, a higher level those different aspects, the, the security, the data, and so on? And I knew that from, I had done it in my projects, right? I had done it. I've, at some point, I was also a project manager. So I wasn't involved in all of those discussions. But I really had trouble putting it to words, especially not being prepared putting it into the right words. And and that's why I think, yeah, it was uh, the right call of the judges to not pass me at that time. But yeah, then I, I think in the last exam, I kind of overdid it <laughs> by uh, focusing too much time on the development lifecycle. Because that was actually one of the feedback that I got, <laughs> that, I got that uh, said, yeah, okay. You could have focused a bit less on that area. But actually, yeah, the, the area that I was most struggling with was the identity and access management. Because also because Tamim was really grilling me on that, right? Really trying to figure out, okay, where, where are the holes in my knowledge? And at some point, I just decided, okay, I have to do this myself. I need to get my hands dirty. That's when I also built that Node.js app. 
where I really built a, an app that was connecting to Salesforce and trying out all of the different identity flows, you know, trying to figure out even going into the official RFC documents, uh, which are uh, generated by, by the W3C, uh, where it was really described, okay, how should this protocol work, the standard of this protocol work, not necessarily related to Salesforce, but to all of security, diving into that. And that really helped me uh, understand that through and through, together with Lawrence Newcomb, who was sparring with me on this topic uh, back and forth. He had some flows drawn out in the Lucid chart. Uh, and we were discussing, okay, is this part right? Is this part right? And that's how I really got a very, very deep understanding of that area, maybe too deep, but it's a bit the same as the other things, right? I find something that grasps my interest and I bite into it and I don't let go. And that's still up until this day, that's something that's uh, an area of interest for me. Whereas, you know, going into the CTA exam, it was the area that I was worrying most about. And did you ever, I guess you, you said that the Salesforce and your mentor and Suzanne, they gave you good feedback. Like how hard was that motivation to go again, that, that retake the, the, the second time? So the, the section retake, yeah, that, yeah, I was waiting for that. So that was not hard at all. Uh, and I also was very close, right? It's just one section. The second full review board, I would say, I was still motivated. I also knew myself that I could do it. Right. And when others confirm that feeling, then yeah, then I I didn't really have any doubts. Maybe it was just a bit more practice, being a bit more comfortable, more confident, retrying, okay, how will I do this presentation? And it's really building up that confidence as well. But yeah, I was really determined to get there. So yeah, I was fully motivated. If I had failed that. Yeah, the last one that I did, I don't know. I don't know what would have happened. But yeah, I was definitely still very motivated uh, for the second full one. So just to clarify, I didn't know that that was a fact. Like I thought you, so you you did the first one, got a partial pass, did the, the module reset. But then if you don't pass that one, you have to do a full review board again. Yes. Back when I uh, was doing it, yes, that was the rule. Now the rule has changed. So now you can have, so if you fail two sections, you can do a retake of those two sections. Right. If you fail a single section, you can have two retakes of the single section. So that made it, uh, I mean, it was the, the, the concept of having to do it all again must have been, uh, although you were motivated, it must have like, yeah, it must have been pretty uh, intense. Yes. Yes and no, because if you do a single section retake, the knowledge that you need to have on that topic also needs to be a lot deeper, right? right. You get a lot of a lot deeper questions, even if the time is more limited. So, yeah, it has its pros and cons, I would say. Uh, so, because you you never went into it like with the goal of be, like initially it was right. I'm going to do the prerequisites. I'm going to tick those off. Like, where did the motivation come from throughout the process? Like, did it then all of a sudden become this thing that you were? Like, I just, I need to achieve this? Like, or was it like, because it's such a big challenge, right? And it takes so much time that there, I speak to so many people that have this goal of being a CTA and even people that are like really early on in their Salesforce journey and they have this goal and they're, 
like really striving hard and putting in the hours and the effort to get there. But for you, it wasn't necessarily like, I really want to be a CTA. It was just, I'm interested in these things I'm going to learn. So did that come like that drive and motivation to get the certification or was it all just a learning experience for you? I think that started when I got the feeling that I could do it. Yeah. I always had in my mind, okay, it might be something that I will go for in, you know, 10 years or something. But when I got the feeling doing those mock exams together with Tamim, I would say, when I got the feeling, hey, I might actually be able to pull this off. Yeah. Then there was like a switch, right? Then you say, okay, now I just need to go for it. And yeah. that was basically the period right before the, the first board up until yeah, the second full one where I passed. Yeah, that was just one drive to, okay, now let's go for it. Then I also was able to ask some time off, right? I said, hey, you know, give me three weeks just to prepare for this board and I'll go for it. I'll fully uh, take myself out of any project work of any other uh, work that I'm doing at the moment and focus on this uh, goal. And yeah, I was also happy that my leadership back then agreed with, with, uh, with that ask of me. And then, yeah, it's the final stretch to go there. That motivation really came after I, I knew that I could do it. Yeah, nice. And obviously, I, I, we see a lot of CTAs in the market giving back and helping others on their journey. And like you've just mentioned, like you've, you've given us a number of names of people that kind of helped in your journey. But what do you most enjoy now about being on the other side of the table and, and helping others achieving their goals of striving towards the CTA? Uh, I think first is sharing my knowledge. Yeah, that's just fun to do, seeing others grasp whatever knowledge you have and become better architects because of it that really motivates me i think another thing is that you just see a lot of different points of view right not everybody has different experiences in their career and they bring other things to the table maybe they've worked with other technologies on the platform than than i have and you know we can learn from each other as well right i don't a lot of people that I sit uh, in, a, in a mock as a judge, a lot of people are like, oh, that's the CTA, uh, you know, they know everything. But yeah, that's not the case, right? We, we know a lot, right? But maybe you have a different type of expertise that you can uh, bring to the table and that yeah, the judges can learn also from. And what I especially enjoy sharing is this expertise that I've built up around identity and access management, because there is actually not a lot of people inside of the Salesforce space that really enjoy that. It's mm -hmm. more, okay, it's a necessary evil to pass the CTA board or to apply to a project in, in some rare cases, but it doesn't happen very often. And being able to share that knowledge and maybe a bit hunger for or hunger for knowledge around that topic. I see that it's appreciated by a lot of people. Uh, I even have a half an hour each week with somebody, an aspiring CTA in Salesforce, who specifically set up that half hour to know about these uh, identity and access topics. But I also, I browse regularly the, uh, we have a Slack channel that's it's all about identity and access management where people ask for help. And, you know, I, I love trying to tackle different types of problems in that area in the, in different enterprise contexts. So, yeah. 
Yeah, nice. So if there's someone listening to this, uh, maybe that doesn't work at, at Salesforce, but you know, maybe wants to pick your brains on any topics really, but identity and access maybe specifically, uh, where's yeah. the best place for them to reach out? I would say uh, first on, on LinkedIn, but I'm also active on Twitter. Not super active, but yeah, if you send me a DM there, then uh, I'll definitely answer you. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed the chat and uh, yeah, really great to hear your insight and your journey. And uh, I'm sure people will take a lot away from that. So thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Ben, for, uh, for doing this. No, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talent Hub Talk. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you could subscribe and also leave a short review. We're keen for this podcast to reach as many people in the Salesforce ecosystem as possible and your reviews will help us do that.